Welcome to the Science and Belief in Society podcast, brought to you by the International Research Network for the Study of Science and Belief in Society. In today's episode, we welcome Dr. Carrie Thulk, the Director of Science and Society Research at Pew Research, and Dr. Courtney Johnson, a Research Associate also at the Pew Research Centre. The Pew Research Centre is a non-partisan fact tank that informs the public about issues, attitudes and trends shaping the world. They conduct public opinion polling, demographic research, content analysis, and other data-driven social science research. And in today's episode, we'll be talking to Carrie and Courtney about Pew's research on the intersection between science and religion, and how they go about measuring public opinion and evolution. But to begin with, I'm Dr Rachel Shilato, a research fellow at the University of Birmingham. And as usual, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr Will Mason-Wilkes and Dr James Riley. So how are you both doing today? Yep, very good, very good. It is another grey day in Britain, so another good day to record an episode of the Science and Belief in Society podcast. It may be grey, but it's Friday. That's the main thing. <laughs> and it's Friday afternoon here, so yeah, this is a great end to the week. Very excited to, to be joined by eminent people from Pew. It's going to be great, I think. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so um, welcome, uh, Courtney and Kerry. Um, so just to start off with, um, how are you both? Uh, where are you and uh, what do you both do? Uh, I'm Kerry Funk and I'm delighted to be here. You know, I agree Friday is a great day to kind of expand our horizons and think through new topics. Um, what I do at the Pew Research Center is direct our research on science and society. I'm Courtney Johnson and um, I'm a research associate here at the Pew Research Center. Um, and I work on the science and society team with Carrie, uh, doing survey research and qualitative research about uh, science-related issues in the U.S. and internationally. And, so, and, and where are you both based? Kind of, what what, what location are you in? Um, I'm here in D.C. in oh. uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah, and me too. I'm in the area. So yes, the center is located in Washington, D.C. And then obviously we do a lot of research in the U.S., but we do quite a lot of global research as well. That's great. So I'm fairly sure that um, quite a few people in the network and beyond will have probably come across research done by Pew, heard a bit about Pew, but uh, I'm imagining there's probably some who haven't as well. So could you just tell our listeners a bit about Pew as a centre? So kind of what is it that what is it that you do at the centre? What does it do? What kind of data does uh, does Pew collect? Um, and kind of what's it uh, what is this data used for? And kind of who is it used by? Sure. You know, the Pew Research Center is a nonprofit research center. We're a subsidiary of the Pew Charitable Trust. So that means that we're primarily talk, uh, you know, we're funded by philanthropy, as we call it here in the U.S., charitable organizations, I think, sometimes elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we're doing is bringing information to bear on important topics in the public discourse. So the emphasis then is to be a little more timely than some scholarship. What we're looking for is to do research that can speak to the current discourse. And so that puts a little more pressure for timeliness on us. Right. Um, the center is very broad and we're trying, I think as, as Rachel had mentioned, we're trying to talk about the issues and trends shaping societies around the world. And we wanna come at it from all those angles. So we have kind of what you might think of as specialist teams within the center who focus on politics, who focus on religion, uh, on issues related to the family and family formation, how families are living today, on the economy and how that's impacting people. 
um, on the news media, and of course our team, which focuses on science. Great. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a huge kind of remit there, a huge sort of scale of things you're you're covering across. So, what I mean, in terms of a sort of size, what's the size of these? How many kind of people are you have, have you got at the centre who are doing this kind of research? I mean, if if you know off the top of your head, or <laughs> I do. You know, it's always a curiosity <laughs> because uh, we have roughly 180 staff at this at the center at the at the component that is the Pew Research Center um, and sometimes that seems kind of small but as you know if you're a researcher you know that you can do quite a lot with just a few people so um, so yeah. that's what we do. And you've recently published a report titled uh, on the intersections of science and religion which actually compares uh, perspectives on science and religion in, in Southeast Asia with uh, other global perspectives. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what are some of if you like the key take-home findings of, of this report? Yeah so for this study we wanted to better understand the ways in which um, religious belief informs people's views of science. So much of the research in this area um, to date has taken place in a Western context um, and focused in particular on Christians. So we wanted to broaden that scope to be more global. So what we did for this study was um, conduct one-on-one -on -one in-depth interviews with small groups of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in Malaysia and Singapore, um, which are two Southeast Asian countries with really religiously diverse populations and that have also made quite sizable investments in um, science research and development in recent years. So this report is based on a qualitative analysis of the transcripts from those one-on-one um, -on -one interviews. Um, and what we heard from our interviewees is that there's you know, really no universally held view of how science and religion relate to one another, as you might imagine. Um, but there are common patterns that emerged amongst the interviewees across these three religious um, groups. So uh, many of the Muslims we spoke with um, expressed the view that Islam and science are related areas um, and told us that their religion contains elements of science. Um, they also said that Islam and science are basically compatible with each other, although they did identify um, some, some specific areas of research that might be problematic for them. Um, studies that use, you know, alcohol or other non-halal substances, for instance, or um, the theory of evolution, um, you know, which we know can also be a, a, a point of contention for Christians here in the West. Um, similar to the Muslim interviewees, Hindus told us that their religion and science uh, were really overlapping areas. And they said that their religion contains insights that have been you know, upheld by um, modern scientific research. Um, but unlike the Muslim interviewees, uh, many Hindus told us that the theory of evolution really posed no conflict for them on a religious level. Uh, many said that evolution was encompassed within their religious teachings, and they also really couldn't name any other areas of um, research that concerned them on religious grounds. Uh, the Buddhist interviewees we spoke with uh, generally described religion and science as really two separate and completely unrelated areas. So they kind of stood out in that regard. Um, many saw Buddhism as something that really offered um, guidance to them on how to live a, a good and moral life, whereas they saw science as something that related to uh, facts and figures and observable phenomenon. So they didn't really think the two, um, Buddhism and science, were related at all. Um, and they also um, kind of in that vein didn't see evolution as a source of conflict. Um, and many told us that they personally believed in it 
And um, some volunteered that they didn't think Buddhism even really addressed the origins of man or of life on earth. Um, and they really couldn't name any particular um, types of scientific research that they might be concerned about for religious reasons. Let me let me just add a couple of more points here because this is a it's a rich it's a rich study and I think it's one that addresses some of the uh, you know gaps or at least under under talked about areas um, uh, in terms of the connection between religion and science you know to the extent there's been scholarship there is more dealing with um, with Christians uh, and or in places that have a larger Christian population, the US, the UK, New Zealand, Australia, not so much other religions. And we're trying to talk about a question, all of us, about the intersection of religion and science. We need to be looking more. I'm not saying, of course, there is some work out there, but I just think not enough. So anything that we can do to add to it um, can, can help us all. Um, and as we were thinking about how to do this, you know, one of the things that we also thought was a useful thing is to, is to is to, to look from a more global lens. So we, you know, we had limitations on what we could do, but we decided to focus in on these two places in Southeast Asia, um, which one of which is Singapore, which has a particularly um, pluralistic society, uh, stands out in our analyses of demography um, as particularly um, diverse in terms of religious groups. And in Malaysia, also relatively pluralistic from a religious lens, but also has a majority of Muslims. So that's a very different context than, let's say, something we're more familiar with, such as Muslims in the US who make up just one to 2% of the population. So we thought that we could get some purchase on these broader questions by looking um, uh, at, a, at a kind of broader lens of religion and outside the West context. Yeah, it's really, um, really interesting. And I think obviously working on a project called Science and Religion Exploring the Spectrum with Global Perspectives, as James and Rachel and I are, we definitely appreciate that kind of quest still, you know, that that drive to look at these range of religious perspectives and a range of kind of global contexts. So that's great. But there's just something that you kind of mentioned there, Courtney, um, that I just found really interesting as you were talking there. This um, uh, you kind of mentioned that the, the, the Buddhist people that you talked to kind of didn't see a relationship necessarily or any kind of relationship really between kind of science and their 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 religion or their buddhism which i think you know given some of the discourses potentially that surround buddhism in the west well that's quite an interesting kind of difference there potentially where you know quite often buddhism is is kind of set up as this kind of religion that is compatible with science right that is you know it's it's the you know it's this one that is most compatible com compared to these kind of typical conflict framings where religions religion and science are you know inherently in conflict buddhism is kind of the exception to the rule so i just found that really interesting that um that came out in your in the in this kind of different context i think that's really interesting <laughs> well it, it did it was something that came up um with many of the buddhist interviewees that we we spoke with um where you know often when we um, started the, to, to guide the interview tour talking about the relationship between science and religion. Some of them were kind of even maybe like confused at the question because they just saw them as such distinct and relate, unrelated areas that they were wondering, you know, how could there be conflict? You know, my Buddhism is really about, you know, being a, a good person and, um, you know, it offers me kind of prescriptives on how to live a, a moral life. Um, yeah, so it, it was it was something definitely that came up amongst um, you know many people, kind of this this confusion about why we might even ask such a question. So let me um, just let me clarify that Courtney was was basically quoting from a Buddhist there, and mm -hmm. she's talking about me and my life. Um, but 
I want to just, I want to come back to your comment there, Will, that one of the things we were very, I think, careful about was to not impose a particular lens mm. um, on this relationship. So we tried to be um, extremely careful in terms of how you approached this conversation about what is the nature of the intersection um, so that we weren't imposing a conflict lens on this. And I think when you do that, we have, I think, coming away from it, a much richer sense of where there are kind of tension points um, between religion and science and where there aren't really, and as well as this nature, the nature of these. I wanna just bring up two that I think um, I found more striking that may not get as much attention in the literature. And one is a commonality uh, across these three religious groups in talking about things in science that would interfere with nature. I found that very interesting because we hear that a lot uh, in, uh, as we're thinking about uh, Christians and their potential tension points, but we also heard that, I believe among all three groups that we spoke with, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus, Anything about science that would disrupt the natural state, um, alter the natural state, is something that could be a potential point of tension. So I found that really interesting. Um, the second kind of takeaway from all three groups um, ha actually had to do with issues around animal welfare. Uh, I, had, I hadn't quite realized how common that was across all religious groups and you know, people raising the idea that um, how science could potentially impact humans as well as animals was an important kind of moral ethical concern that they brought to bear when they're thinking about it. Yeah, the, the thing about not harming um, you know, animals or humans was something that really struck me too. Um, you know, Buddhists and Hindus often kind of, you know, as I said, didn't really um, identify areas of research in particular, you know, certain areas of study that um, concern them on religious grounds, but they did both, you know, emphasize um, the need for people in their religions to kind of do no harm. And so they did say that this, you know, extends to scientist behavior. And to that extent, they did express, um, you know, concern about scientific research potentially causing, you know, unnecessary harm to animals. Thank you. I, I mean, I think this is why it's really important that the kind of field of um, social science research, at least looking into science of religion, has started to expand, you know, beyond the West, beyond the US and beyond Europe, because it just goes to show that there are such a multiplicity of relationships between science and religion. And that can depend domain on domain, perhaps what, what science we're talking about, but also on what religion we're talking about. And as you said there, Kerry, sometimes there are commonalities, but, uh, but obviously sometimes there are differences too. Um, and the report is wonderful and it's, it's very nicely presented. So I do urge anyone who's listening to go and have a read of it. Um, in the report, what you also did was you kind of operationalized what sometimes an abstract relationship between science and religion as these two kind of almost ideal types. And you kind of bring it down to the specifics of um, touch points, as you call it, between religion and biotechnology specifically. I think you touched on this slightly. Uh, and this was around pregnancy technologies, gene editing for babies and animal cloning. So I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about how members of different religious groups that you studied um, perceive these specific issues. Sure, you know, I would just, uh hopefully clarify again that what we did in the interview, you know, this is a qualitative one-on-one -on -one interview. So you had, we, had, we used an interview guide, obviously other people were doing the interviews. Um, 
but we were trying to help them start a conversation that would go from broadest questions and then to the most narrow. Um, so a kind of inverted pyramid there. Uh, and towards that end, towards the inverted pyramid side, towards the narrow end, we wanted to probe on, are there areas of scientific research that you might think of as kind of off limits, colloquially speaking? Um, you know, and what we did there was take some guidance from the literature, from the US surveys we've done about where would there be potential conflict and where we have seen it the most is areas around biotechnology. Um, that tend to be raising ethical concerns that, that tie in with religious beliefs. Um, and so we wanted to probe on those specifically. Um, I think, and what we, what we heard from that, I think also led to some new insight. You know, uh, I think we heard a lot of positive tone in people's responses, but then people would spontaneously raise the kind of, uh, you might say, guardrails around when it would be appropriate and not. Um, and particularly making connections between their religious beliefs um, about what would be an ethical way to use these technologies. And I think that's really a key takeaway there. Um, Courtney might wanna add, add to that. Yeah, um, well, there was, I guess it, um, you know, sort of relates to that concern about going against nature. Another concern that came up frequently amongst Muslims was this idea of, you know, playing God. Um, and they felt like with, um, you know, certainly with cloning, where you're perhaps creating a new life, um, that that was something that was definitely like the realm of, of God's power. And that shouldn't be something that humans interfere with. And similar with, you know, gene editing, they felt like that this was maybe, um, uh, you know, interfering with, with work that is, is best left to God. And it's maybe humans kind of um, working outside of kind of the natural realm that we're supposed to work in. We talked about pregnancy technologies to, to make a shorthand for it, but you know, there's, there actually have been quite a lot of innovations in this space, um, but probably the most um, well-known is um, in vitro fertilization, IVF. Um, and, I, and Muslims that we interviewed talked about how that would have to be done kind of within their sense of what is moral and right. So only within a couple who is already married to each other, only with genetic material of the husband and the wife, so to speak. So that's another kind of reminder that how these science technologies are used is really important from this lens. Another, I guess, example of that that struck me from the interviews um, in talking about um, gene editing was that the applications of it really like people's opinions of it really hinged on what the applications were. So if it was to, um, you know, prevent, um, a, you know, a child from having a disease, like a terrible disease that might occur later on in their life, um, prevent a disease that uh, maybe a complication that they would be born with, um, most people were pretty in favor of that um, across um, all three religious groups. Um, but people did volunteer um, that you know, they, they kind of foresaw in the question potentially other applications for it. So they said things like, but if you're just doing this for cosmetic purposes, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. You know, if um, it, you know, multiple people mentioned that, you know, perhaps it would mean that people could, you know, westernize their babies. Um, people kind of mentioned unprompted, you know, if it's just to give your baby blonde hair and blue eyes, no, because that's, <laughs> Uh, not what you know your child's supposed to look like. That's going against nature. That theme that came up, 
Um, and also just a sense that, you know, that's, we don't know what the implications of that could be. Um, so if you're doing it, you know, to prevent a terrible form of cancer, that's great. But um, just for cosmetic reasons, that seems like an unnecessary risk. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's fascinating, just what you're touching on there, Courtney, and that kind of, and then this is something that's come up in some of the kind of other interviews we're doing in terms of the kind of colonial legacy in kind of particular parts of the world of the sort of, um, of, you know, kind of science and these kind of, you know, this imposition of sort of Western science into areas and things like that and Western ideals. Um, and that's, yes, that certainly that the, some of the other scholars we've talked to have worked in kind of um, non-Western context have kind of flagged up as being kind of interest, uh, you know, important kind of um, issue in, in these areas and elsewhere, of course. Um, I thought mm. with this idea that in these kind of issues that are flagging up around biotechnology, pregnant technology, gene editing, they all kind of, in some ways, kind of center kind of, you know, have some kind of direct impacts on, on humans. And I think in some of the research that we've done previously in our team, looking at also how non-religious kind of people perceive some of these issues, there are actually some interesting kind of commonalities actually that you wouldn't necessarily think as you've kind of identified there across religions, but also when you include non-religious people that actually when the issues circulate or center around like humans and effects on humans and human consciousness and things like this, there are actually a lot of kind of similarities that you wouldn't, that don't actually kind of appear when you know you're talking about again these things in more general terms like the relationship between science and religion so I think that's quite interesting that you know you found that actually a lot of the you know when when humanity or kind of effects on individual humans are kind of centered there are actually some interesting kind of commonalities across these things I think that's quite interesting yeah yeah just to flesh that out with some of our some of our research so specifically we conducted an interview um a survey on kind of attitudes towards evolution and um we used quite a few different measures to kind of get at the issue of evolution perceptions of it. And one of the things that was interesting was that um, one of the main things that people found difficult to accept regarding evolution was um, that of humans. And I suppose that, that, you know, evolution regarding humans is probably, you'd say that is, yeah, obviously that's probably one of the hardest things to accept. We think we're special, but even in non-religious groups, there was kind of a pushback against the ability for evolution to explain things like human consciousness, um, you know, yeah, the human brain as well, to a certain extent. Um, so kind of a pushback against you know evolutionary explanations when it comes down to the human and perhaps this is, comes down to just being human you think humans are special <laughs> uh, which which we obviously we are yeah i know i agree and i think we need to keep doing more um because i think people's beliefs about human evolution are distinct from their beliefs about um about the evolution of other living things as we like to say it in our questions um, and I think we've seen that in experimental work and your surveys and elsewhere. And I think we just need to keep pushing on that and better understand that. But we're kind of going on to a more kind of methodological question now, which is where I like to be. I like I like methodological questions, because in this in this report, um, you kind of use both qualitative and quantitative methods to kind of make sense of um, the perspective of the uh, of people of different faith towards science. Um, so just as a kind of general question, what do you kind of see as the um, see as the kind of benefits of this sort of mixed method or, you know, mixing qualitative and quantitative methods in this way? Yes. Um, so the, the relationship um, between religion and views of science is obviously a really complex one, which is something we've, you know, keep coming back to in this discussion. Um, and so our approach to um, exploring these questions was really about combining methodologies that would give us both that breadth and depth. Um, and the benefits and drawbacks of quantitative and qualitative work, um, and in our case um, here, you know, surveys and one-on-one -on -one interviews, 
really complement each other. Um, so quantitative studies, you know, um, like surveys done with representative samples are good at telling us how prevalent, you know, a particular perspective is within a population and at giving us um, a big picture look at public opinion. Um, so really providing that breadth. And because the samples are representative, we can use those results to talk about whole populations. But surveys aren't necessarily good at telling us why people hold you know, a certain opinion. Um, so on a survey, unless we include you know, an open-ended follow-up question, we don't really get to ask respondents for clarification about, you know, hey, why, why did you choose that particular answer? Um, and we don't really know, you know, what considerations maybe they had in their mind when they were um, deciding how to how to respond. So that's kind of where that qualitative work comes in. It provides that that depth. Um, so in these one-on-one -on -one interviews, you know, we can ask follow-up questions of our interviewees when we need clarification or want them to, you know, elaborate on something that they said. Um, and interviewees can really describe in their own words how they see that relationship between science and religion. Um, so as researchers, that kind of lets us get closer to answering that um, why question and maybe better understanding why people feel the way they do about science and religion. Um, but, you know, that qualitative work is often done with smaller samples of people. Um, those samples aren't necessarily representative of the general public. So it has its you know, drawbacks in terms of generalizability. So that's really the strength of combining those quantitative and qualitative research methods. You know, surveys, they're generalizable to the public, but it's maybe harder to go deeper on these issues. Um, interviews let you have a deeper discussion, but they have um, limited generalizability because they're done with so few people. Um, and that's why we combined the two methods in this report. Um, so you'll see, if you go read the report, which I you know, hope everybody does, uh, you'll see us you know, present our analysis of the qualitative interviews and then follow that up with a discussion of past survey research on, on that topic um, to kind of give readers a sense of how um, prevalent these attitudes are um, when we've measured them in, in other studies. Um, I'll also note that uh, many of the questions that are in our interviewer guide for this project were ones that we went on later to then ask in a, a 20 public survey a few months later. Um, so for example, um, one of the areas we asked our qualitative interviewees about uh, was government investment in science. So we asked them you know, whether government investments in um, scientific research broadly or um, more specifically uh, medical research or engineering uh, were usually worthwhile over time or whether they just weren't, the mon weren't worth the money. Um, what we found in the one-on-one -on -one interviews was that people um, really regardless of whether they were Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist, were enthusiastic about their governments spending money in these areas. Um, you know, even people who perhaps, you know, later in the interviews told us that they had reservations about particular areas of research, maybe like gene editing or cloning. Um, they talked about how, you know, investments in, in science could bring about, um, you know, more jobs to their country, better jobs, um, maybe better medical treatments, um, or even, you know, international recognition for, for their country. And then later when we, we asked these questions of nationally representative samples in the 20 public survey, you know, that, that's also what we found. People overwhelmingly said that government investment in scientific research is worthwhile. And so the qualitative interviews that we did earlier kind of gave us some insight into why people might be so in favor of that type of investment in their country. That's really interesting, Courtney. 
just want to add a couple more thoughts on that because I think that's a, it's an important topic. Um, the other thing I, I found useful in this particular um, research where we, you know, we, we were talking with, let's say, Muslims in two places, um, by then being able to look at um, some past surveys about what did Muslims think around the world uh, in places where they were in large enough um, segments of the population to survey. And again, it was a few years ago, but I think it still lends insight, right? Because it doesn't immediately fade. Um, that really underscored um, variation among Muslims around the world. And that was an important lesson to keep in mind that you're hearing one thing from a small sample in a couple of places and keep in mind the variety of opinion we're seeing around the world. So that was really a good takeaway. And I think the there's a convert there's a kind of a catchphrase going around in the survey research world right now called fit for purpose, and that we're designing samples that are fit for purpose. And I think that's a concept that we could think about here too. That these different research tools have different strengths and weaknesses, and you're designing which tool you use based on what your your core purpose is. I think. We talk a lot about the representative sample and how valuable that is, but the other thing I think to keep in mind for is that quantitative surveys are designed to give you big picture patterns. And of course, the frustrating thing, if you're a qualitative researcher or you're just a human, is that it never captures all of the individual variation that each of us has. I don't know anyone who looks like majority opinion, right? We all have more complicated views and ideas, but what you're doing is kind of zooming out and looking at these big patterns of public opinion across um, kind of at a higher altitude. Thanks, Gary. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a few things there that are really interesting to pick up on. Um, I think, I think, yeah, qualitative quantitative work should should work together. And I think I think you guys have done it um, perfectly in the report. I think what you said about the kind of variety of beliefs, perhaps amongst uh, Muslims or amongst any kind of religious population, I think that's where this area of research really kind of shines, and um, it gets to us to move away from stereotypes about a population by just showing how variable um, beliefs within a population can be as well as between populations. Again, something you said there, Courtney, as well, which is really important to remember. Sometimes even if there are certain um, resistances to particular areas of science, um, whether they be about the kind of technical detail or, or more, more kind of, you know, ethical concerns, which we perhaps see more of, especially around these ideas of biotechnology and everything, um, that doesn't then necessarily translate to a wholesale rejection of science. I suppose you get that from the kind of, yeah, well, we still want science to be funded, but there may be some apprehensions around specific areas. And I think that's something that comes out of science and society uh, research more generally um, quite well. But yeah, really interesting stuff. Thank you. So I think just sort of stepping a bit back and thinking more broadly about sort of the research that, that Pew does and that it does do a lot of research on science um, and society with, with religion being a, a significant part of that. But can I just ask like, what, you know, why were you interested in that? Why was Pew interested in that? Um, or indeed as, as you as individuals, what, 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 was the, what was the reason you decided to add that to, to your research agenda on, on science and society? Sure, the, um, the center made a kind of uh, focused commitment to start studying um, science and society or as a longer winded version is to say the implications of science for society. That's really what you're looking at, right? 
and what I, I often talk about, you know, the, the fact is that we don't study all of science. We only study the pieces of science that are, that are connecting with broader civic issues. So we're looking at the portions of science that are raising either social or ethical or policy issues. And we, we are looking at science as broadly as we can from that lens, but it is that intersection of science and society. And of course, if you're looking at things that are raising um, ethical issues in particular, you're more likely to also want to include the role of religion in, in thoughts about this. So, um, so I see that as an important component. Um, you know, what's, what's interesting about everything we've learned so far is that there's no single kind of lens that people have that explains all of their views and beliefs around science-related issues. So there are some things that do connect with people's religious beliefs, and there's quite a lot that don't. Um, and the same thing for politics or education or gender or whatever other kind of, um, as we like to think of it as a demographic or background factor, um, you know, there's just no, there's no one single way in which people think about these topics. Thanks, Carrie. And um, we kind of touched on this earlier, but uh, I want to go back to the idea of, of evolution, because evolution is one of those mainstay topics in science and religion um, that's been that's been studied. Um, and but I think it's actually, as we've hinted to, it's actually quite difficult to measure people's views of evolution on surveys for various reasons. Um, so could we, could you tell us a little bit about your approach, uh, view to uh, measuring attitudes towards evolution using surveys and a little bit about how that's developed or is developing, of course. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, we'd start with the idea that anything that is a kind of what I think of as a complex attitude is going to be difficult to measure for the reasons we talked about. A quantitative survey is going to simplify at some level. Um, and, uh, and, that's, and that's part of why you want more questions, right? It's particularly hard to simplify and then have only one question. So that's why your work in this area is particularly valuable once you start to be able to kind of, you capture more of the dimensions um, when you're doing that. And, you know, what you're always looking for in designing a survey question is to put all of the options on the table, to give people a place to express their views that they hold, to make sure that their views are represented in that set. Um, and it's tricky. Uh, in, the, in the case of evolution, um, we, we typically had done this, what we call the branched approach or a two-step approach where we tried to get a, a sense of whether they thought evolution happened or didn't, um, and then tried to talk about how they thought it worked. And when they got to the how they thought it worked, we introduced the concept that perhaps God had a role in that. Um, but uh, there was always this sense that maybe people were not being able to express what they thought at that first round um, and then, and so, uh, and then that I think to some degree, um, the findings align with that. So, so what we did was do a survey based experiment where we had our kind of standard branch format and then we compared that with a, um, a, a single option where you got to say right away, um, not only whether evolution had happened, but how you thought it might have worked and whether and that included a role for God. Um, and what you found there was, you know, wide differences, um, particularly among uh, kind of more religious groups in the US, white evangelical Protestants and black Protestants, 
But interestingly and importantly, no differences among what we call the religiously unaffiliated. So those who are atheist agnostic or have no particular religion is how we define it. Um, so that's really important. One other thing that you might need to hear, which is that I often hear people in the scientific community raise questions about why would you even include God in a question around evolution, right? In the religious community, they're asking, why would you not include God in a question about evolution? And so there's there's kind of, um, there's there's no single solution that would satisfy all those different perspectives. And I think that's that's actually a principle of survey research as well. There's often more than one appropriate way to ask about beliefs. Um, and that's that's helpful to keep in mind. And I think we learned something from it. Yeah, so, so it's with, if you do not include God in the initial question, then there's going to be some religious people who are going to say no to evolution um, because there's no God option. Um, but then if you include God options, um, certainly I've seen from the, we, we included an open response to our, our one-step question when we did it. And I was just going through um, the people who said, I have another view. And then we gave them uh, the option to write what their other view was. Interestingly, some of those people said, even though you had the naturalistic evolution option that said God played no part in it, they said that that presupposed the existence of God, so they were not going to click it as well. So as you say, it's such a complex issue. Interestingly, we got quite a few people saying um, alien interventionism in that open response as well, um, which we won't go into now. But yeah, um, so yeah, you're right. It's absolutely a tricky, uh, a tricky issue. But um, what we will do, we'll link to your report that you wrote on that, the evolution of few research measures as well. So I think that will be interesting for anyone who's um, interested in this area as well. So thank you for that. Right. Uh, you know, I... This is totally wonky for those of us in the in the uh, research business, but you know some of these um, issues came out of our practices of doing telephone surveys, where you had to ask one question at a time. Um, now that more surveys are being done in an online format, where people can visually see what they're being asked, the thing we haven't tested is putting them both on the same screen. And whether you could get the using the branch format both on the same screen so people can see what's coming would be different than having to wait for it on a one-on-one -on -one telephone interview. So, you know, these these methods keep changing, and that means that how we're going to ask about them is also going to change. Uh, yeah, so that's really interesting. So they can see that they will be able to select God as kind of an agent of creation but still be able to choose the evolution option beforehand without thinking that it may well be excluding their kind of belief position in God. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's fasc fascinating the kind of how, how these research tools that we kind of uh, develop and use can have, you know, such fundamental kind of impacts on you know the data that we produce. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was going to pick up something kind of in this area on something that you said, um, Carrie, in terms of the, research that Pew does and specifically in its science and society stuff you know having to select essentially or you know having to limit its its interest or not limit but you know but, but but you know being interested in those issues that intersect with society you know those scientific issues that intersect with society so you know someone with so my background in kind of science and technology studies and I think that you know is a really interesting question how what becomes salient and becomes kind of operationalized in our research then you know and how that then feeds back into becoming those issues which are salient for people because they're the things that they're getting asked about that you know beforehand mm -hmm. how, how the kind of research process it might be you know again how we're creating the kind of objects of our study potentially in some of these research you know some of the research that we do but yeah mm -hmm. I mean I just I mean that process of, of coming up with those issues that are salient 
for for asking questions must be a really interesting one i mean can you say anything about how that happens or how how you go through those things or is it iterative um yeah it's probably it, it is probably iterative i think what comes to mind is to just talk about our work around emerging science and technology issues and biotechnology is in that camp but you know we've done we've done a fair bit that i would call um that are difficult, that are definitely emerging issues that haven't really reached public awareness, right? That's particularly hard, right? Because you're not expecting, there's no way, shape or form that you're expecting people to have preformed opinions. And you do not want to be moving people in one direction or another, you're trying to measure people's opinions. Um, and so it's, it's particularly tricky. And I would say it's when we do a lot more qualitative research at the startup. Um, I'm gonna talk just a little bit about the work we did around the issue of human enhancement, which is a broad concept of using biomedical interventions to fundamentally change the nature of human abilities. Not something even now, it's been several years and it's still not really a household term. Um, it's a philosopher's term. So this is not something that people would normally come to uh, come to a survey and have preformed opinions about. Uh, we did a series of focus groups to find out whether they, how they would talk about it. Could they talk about it? What would they talk about if they heard about it? Um, and that helped us a lot. Um, and um, often we'll also do uh, what you might think of as qualitative light where we do uh, a series of open-ends um, in, a, in a survey context, but a lot of open-ended questions with a small sample, it kind of gets you to the same place. Hear how people are talking about it with you know, just a loose prompt and see what they say. So at any rate, the, that helps a lot when you're trying to do that. Um, one of the things that we found is that if, if we gave people too much information, it was kind of distracting. Um, then they would focus in on a piece of kind of a small technical detail instead of the concept we were trying to get them to think about. So maybe that's another reason why quantitative surveys are a little more simplified. It, it is, there's a cognitive process there. Um, if you give too many words, this actually happens way too many times, you give too many words, um, people start focusing on something that wasn't what you intended. Um, and I think, and that's also, I think, a potential hypothesis around why these questions with humans and other living things are different than questions with humans or questions about other living things. We've seen an example in the US where they just talk about the evolution of elephants that, you know, that gets people right to the concept of animals, not humans. You know, those, the words that you use, how we process information is also going on here. So I digress, but that, um, that may be part of uh, how we do it one of the things that we've also talked about our other guests and we'd be really interested to talk to you both about is kind of your your sort of journeys to this to date so you know how you kind of um your journeys as researchers that is not your journeys to work or you know so your journeys you know how you how you kind of got to where you were how you got interested in this research um into these kind of science and society or science and religion issues and kind of also how you end up doing them at, at pew and in a kind of research center like pew because obviously most of the people we've spoken to are based at you know at universities or academic institutions so i think it'd be really interesting to hear about a kind of journey into a non uh, you know a non-university research setting so if you could you know tell us about that that'd be great i would say i have a background in the social sciences i came from psychology and in the so social psychological specialty of that um, but I actually spent um, a good bit of my first professional years as a political scientist. 
Um, and more broadly, I really am just interested in public opinion because I'm interested in people. Um, I'm interested in how people think about things, where that comes from, how it changes, how it connects with behaviors, all those kinds of things. Um, I've worked at the Pew Research Center for some time and what I got to do there was uh, work with kind of each of these specialist teams that I mentioned. And so I've, I've worked on politics, I've worked on religion, I've worked on families, I've worked on science for many years as well. What I find is that there's always something a little special about each of those topic areas. They're the same broad concepts of public opinion, public attitudes, how do they change? Um, but there's always some kind of special issues and you needed that kind of training time um, in each of those areas to get a feel for it. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things I love about doing science and society work is that it actually is so broad that we actually do intersect with all of those areas. Um, so we get to make use of all of it. Well, I, yeah, I can talk a bit, a bit about my, uh, my, my journey to Pew. Um, so I got my master's in uh, journalism and public opinion research at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, and then I went to the University of Washington, Seattle to get my PhD. Um, when I was there, I was focused on uh, political communication and journalism and public opinion. Um, but many of the professors I had um, in that program at uh, Washington really encouraged me and the other students in the program to kind of study a wide array of you know, research methods, both qualitative and quantitative, so that we'd be, you know, really well-rounded researchers um, when we got through the program. Um, as I was, you know, finishing up my doctorate, um, I knew, um, this was a few years ago, um, that I wanted to work at a place, you know, where I could do really public-facing research. Um, so it was just important to me that, you know, I kind of use these research skills I've been honing throughout grad school to produce work that, um, no, would enrich the public debate and um, kind of in, inform people. Um, and the Pew Research Center, you know, absolutely fit that bill for me. Um, and I've been using the center's data kind of throughout grad school. Um, and I knew it would be a place where I could do that kind of public facing work. And also, you know, like a lot of people who get PhDs, I'm also someone who really likes school a lot. So I knew that the Pew Research Center would also be a place where I could, you know, continue learning from people who um, you know, we're experts in public opinion or in their, their particular um, uh, fields. Um, and so I started at the center's uh, Global Attitudes Project, um, which is one of the teams that does large international surveys really across a wide range of topics. Um, and I was working on projects there that looked at issues um, like uh, views of the news media and politics in Western Europe was one of our studies. Um, another one looked at how people in um, emerging global economies see mobile technology and the internet, how they think it impacts their personal lives and their societies. Um, and I also had a background um, from graduate school um, in researching public opinion of science. Um, and so when the opportunity came along, you know, to work on this project and the big 20 public survey and also um, the domestic uh, work the center does focusing on science, you know, I, I, I jumped at it and here I am now. That, that's really interesting. I mean, that, both of you have, have, have kind of echoed something that almost at the start of this interview, I kind of flagged up to me, but this idea, you know, that this is a big, a big center with a huge remit across, you know, lots of different areas, but it seems like both of you had a kind of a journey that goes across these different kind of topic areas, which I think 
for us in our team is is probably reasonably familiar as we work in a kind of interdisciplinary unit but i think for maybe that's one of the potential key differences in terms of you know the traditional in inverted commas their kind of academic career as it maybe has, has been conceived of that you know you're quite siloed in your discipline but it seems from both of what you're talking about there there's much more of a of a kind of you know a, a a spread in terms of and a spread of experience with these different kind of knowledge areas which i think is really interesting yeah yeah i think yeah i think that's just it's just really interesting to hear your research journeys um i think it'll be really interesting for the, for our listeners as well and you know if, if pew ever opens up a an office in in bristol <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite dc but i'll be there i was wondering yeah how long it'd take for you just uh <laughs> use it in like a <laughs> yeah a mini a mini cv but i i was just wondering what's, <laughs> what's uh so what's next for for you both when it comes to to your work at pew and and and, and your research what's what's perhaps next on the cards um if yeah. you can share in terms of research uh, you know related to religion and science sure i mean well one thing that's next courtney mentioned that we did a 20 public survey um and so it it's focused on places in europe and the asia pacific region just a handful of others, the US, Canada, Brazil, and Russia, I believe. Um, and so we have one major report from that already out, but we have another one that will be coming out that is more of interest to this group. We'll focus on these issues around biotechnology, we'll have some data on evolution, um, and we'll have some analysis by religious groups across these publics, which, you know, it's, it's uh, 20 is not nearly the whole world, um, but it does give you a richer portrait of um, of the of uh, the relationship between religion and, and people's attitudes around science. So that's that's one thing coming out. We'll probably be out possibly by the time we go live with this podcast, um, and we will have the data sets from that study available for public use. So want to make sure um, this group is aware of that. We we typically make all of our data publicly available. As, uh, as long as we can um, adhere to issues around confidentiality for respondents, um, we make it available. And so that should be a rich resource for some of you out there. Um, and that's um, that's what's first on the horizon. I see James's eyes lighting up as the prospect of a big, big load of data coming in. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That sounds really exciting. Yeah, I'm sure we will look out for for all of that. You know, really, um, really closely. It's just really interesting to hear the methodological, uh, mm. the data, um, and your journeys. Um, but yeah, so th thank you so much. Thank you so much. I think this was a really, um, it was certainly fun for us and and really engaging uh, conversation. Hope we can do it again sometime. Well, that was great, wasn't it? I mean. Uh, it's, I mean, I always find these podcasts, you know, so insightful and, and so sort of, you know, intellectually stimulating. Um, but, it, you know, it's wonderful to have two people from Pew, like whose mm -hmm. research I've drawn on so much over the years to, to speak with and get a, a better sense of, of the work they do and actually how they go about doing it. Um, it's really, really insightful. Yeah, seeing behind the curtain of mm. Pew was... The, what, um, well, there's there's some telepathy going on, James. This is exactly what I was going to say. Seeing behind the curtain, I mean, this is this is madness. But yeah, no, completely. Yeah, it's like the Wizard of Oz, but the Wizard. I was going to say the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> but no, really, really interesting. Um, and yeah, as I'm sure, James, you, you had a million and one more questions that you wanted to ask there, but you know, maybe another future podcast. Who knows? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Grateful for for both of them giving their time and uh, just really interesting yeah. to hear how they they're combining. Um, qualitative quantitative work uh, and obviously really thoughtful research designs um, 
and obviously it's, it's wonderful presentation as well so i guess we'll link to all of um, the reports we talked about today on the website well thank you for joining us today and be sure to check out our website and keep it abreast of all future podcasts coming from the science and belief society podcast series bye for now Thank you.